Ohio Habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y spanglish. Welcome to Ohio Habla. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is Jonathan. Jonathan is from Cleveland. He spent three years in prison, and the last one during the COVID-19 pandemic. He joins me today to talk about his experience as a Latino man in the prison system and what he witnessed during the pandemic. Bienvenido a este episodio, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How does a young college graduate end up in prison? Well, um... A young college graduate ends up in prison, um, you know, a lot of, we, you know, when you're in college, mm-hmm. everybody is always, uh, is always kind of making fun of how, oh, I'm just a broke college student. I'm just, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, like you hear that a lot, like, oh, like I'm in college, I don't have any money. And so um, there was an instance where I was in college and I, you know, had an opportunity to make money um, in a way that wasn't legal. And I mm-hmm. had to do it because I did need a little money. Um, it was uh, simply trying to get a little money for rent, but that led to um, three years of incarceration. And at the time, I didn't think it would, but it did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. About how many Latino men were at the prison were with you? Uh, tell me a little bit about the population where you were. Yeah, there were there were a lot of uh, Latino men that were um, incarcerated. Um, for example, at the prison that I was at, mm-hmm. we there was probably a total of about twenty one to twenty two um, hundred inmates. Mm-hmm. And if I had to take a rough estimate, I'd say that out of those two thousand or so, um, there was there was at least maybe like two to three hundred of those. Mm-hmm. Um, there were Latinos. There were Latino men. Mm-hmm. So about ten percent. Yeah, so there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, about ten percent. There, there, it was, uh, and, and you know, and, and that's just a rough estimate. I don't, right. I don't know the exact numbers, but I do remember that there was a lot. There were a lot of us. Mm-hmm. You know, there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of Latino men in that prison. Mm-hmm. In your experience, um, how are the different populations of Latino? Or of Latinos treated, and and I mean in terms of immigration. Um, language, education, and cultural heritage? Is there groups, you know, if, uh, do you have uh, maybe some that are non-English speakers that are maybe treated differently or given, given or not given resources, um, or in terms of just different, you know, being from different places um, around Latin America or even within the U.S.? Yeah, there, um, you know, the, different like latino populations like ultimately like we were treated like you could tell that over like i guess this wasn't always the case but like when i was there mm-hmm. there was an effort being made to at least you know give latinos like you know um to like help accommodate them just a little more like for example like the, every sign that was written in english would also be written in spanish right mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. um it was little things like that but as far as like actual accommodations like you know um Like, I remember one of the things that, like, used to upset a lot of the Latino inmates mm-hmm. was the fact that 
they had, you know, you know, everybody had access to, tele- to television, right? So mm-hmm. there was, um, there was like cable television that was available to certain inmates that were willing or uh, fortunate enough to afford, you know, a, a television set. Mm-hmm. So like, if you could afford a television set, or if someone, or if you somehow got one through through the, you know, through through certain other avenues. Um, well, you had access to like cable television. And so when you had access to cable television, television, that was cool. But if you were Latino and you were someone who maybe didn't know English, like that was difficult because there wasn't really any Spanish channels. And I remember that be- that started becoming an issue because there was one Spanish channel, but that one Spanish channel was uh, a religious channel. It was a, it was a Christian channel. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and so like, you know, there's nothing wrong with that being a channel, but to be the only channel, Mm-hmm. You know, it, it didn't offer a lot of the Latino men in there, like, access to the certain types of entertainment that everyone else had access to. And so when they started getting vocal about it, um, you know, at first they wouldn't, they didn't listen. Um, you know, they kind of just, like, said whatever. Um, but, at, like, right before I left, they did uh, They did eventually get the guy Telemundo. And so guys were really excited about <laughs> finally having things, Telemundo. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the little thing. Yeah. Were there, did you notice any type of, I mean, kind of prison politics, right, regarding um, the different populations of Latinos, and I'm talking about maybe undocumented um, immigrants Mm -hmm. that were there, and and then, um, you know, citizens, U.S. citizens, that Latino U.S. citizens. Um, was that, um, was, you know, were they treated differently? Um, was there, um, maybe an assumption that, you know, all Latinos were undocumented or, um, didn't speak English (laughs) or, you know, things like that? Absolutely. So like, yeah, like with, so within the, within the prison, within the prison, like culture itself, Mm -hmm. um, there were like, there, there were like certain, uh, stereotypes that like follow just being Latino, right? Like, so of course, like anybody that wasn't Latino would assume that, you know, all the Latinos were Mexican, right? Mm-hmm. Like that was just like right. that was like the biggest, most like common assumption that like everybody would make. You know, if you, so for example, you know, I was an, I'm an individual who like I'm I'm Puerto Rican and Dominican, mm-hmm. so um you know I'm I'm a, I'm a Caribbean male, and so we're so, you know I I I'm a, I'm just a little different as far mm-hmm. as my pheno, my phenotype, uh, you know, like I just look a little different from like some of my, my Mexican brothers that were in there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so people wouldn't really immediately assume that I was Latino because um, they would always assume that I was like mixed with black or that I was like a, a white and mixed. I was like white and black, you know, mm-hmm. mixed like that. Mm-hmm. And so then they would hear me speak Spanish and they would see me like interacting with a lot of the other Latino men in the prison. And they would always be like, Whoa, like I didn't know you were Mexican. <laughs> and you know it would always catch a lot of these guys off guard and i would be you know, and i would have to like you know i would always uh do my best to educate you know in a in a in a manner that didn't seem um you know condescending you know i would just let them know like no nah, man like i'm not mexican and then they were you know sometimes i'd get the oh well like aren't you guys all the same and mm-hmm. then, you know i'd have to mm-hmm. i'd have to go there and try to explain that as well but um i always tried my best to educate and not and not to you know not to um make people feel bad so was that coming from inmates or guards or both of them? Both, both. Yeah. Like if you, um, it didn't, you know, like everybody assumed that if you just knew Spanish, you were Mexican. And so, so that, but that's like, you know, but to answer your question, that did come with other, you know, that did come with other, 
other forms of treatment, right? Like people did assume that you were undocumented, you know, like that was mm-hmm. often, you know, um, the big one. Like everybody's like, oh, so like, you know, so are you getting deported? Like that was usually one of the next questions that they would ask, mm. um, you know, after they found out that one was Latino, you know, and so, um, you know, like I, I, I didn't see, you know, because in prison you got to understand that the Latinos, we, you know, and like, you know, you were kind of asking about culture, but, you know, we, we, we kind of stuck together, you know, mm-hmm. um, now, of course, even within even within the Latino community in a prison, there are like subdivisions, right? Like you know, yeah. mm-hmm. subgroups. You know, like the 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 Mexicans will will you know will stick together. Um, you know, the usually the Puerto Rican and Dominicans and like the you know the Caribbeans, you know, they'll stick together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then and then you know you do have like even like smaller subgroups, but ultimately it really just was like your Caribbean. And then the Mexicans tended to adopt, you know, guys that came in that were maybe like, you know, from other Central American countries, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, a few people from Honduras or a few people from Guatemala, you know, like people that came from those areas, they usually just were adopted by the Mexicans <laughs> and would tell them like, hey, like you can run with us, you know, like we'll, we'll, we'll make sure that you guys are good. Um, so that's, you know, but together we were all Latinos and we knew that and we took care of each other even in the grand scheme of things you know like so if anything ever got to a point where we all felt like we needed to unite we would mm-hmm. you know because at the end of the day although prison you know like prison does come with uh <laughs> those moments where you know guys didn't want to let you know they didn't want to let other people assume that they could be uh messed with and mm-hmm. stuff like that so mm-hmm. so yeah that was uh right yeah, that was, you know, so, yeah, so people, but, but because of that respect, and my point was that because Latinos did demand that respect, you know, in, in that place, you didn't get, you didn't see a lot of mistreatment from other, from other, other prisoners, groups, like, like other, yeah, white. yeah, other inmates, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, white inmates, black inmates, and, 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 and inmates in between, they didn't disrespect or they didn't like treat Latinos any different because they knew that that would come with a set of problems that they usually didn't want to deal with, you know? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so no, so for both, both from staff and from guards, we did experience like small bits of, um, you know, prejudice or racism or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. Um, you know, they, they, you know, they, they would let us speak Spanish, but, you know, but never like in a work environment. Like mm-hmm. when I would go, like, for mm-hmm. example, like I worked for the commissary office at the prison that I was at. And so the commissary office, of course, is where in, in, inmates will go get their food mm-hmm. and where they will, um, you know, go and, uh, you know, just buy all the extra stuff that they can get. And I remember that towards the end of my time in prison, they hired two more Latinos. Mm-hmm. And so one was Dominican and one was Puerto Rican. So I finally had people that I could speak Spanish to in, in that work environment. And mm-hmm. so... I would speak Spanish to them, but it started making the, the, the staff uncomfortable. Like the staff would ask us like, please don't speak Spanish mm-hmm. in here, you know, and they, and they would tell us like, and you know, and I even had one staff member tell us, man, you guys can save that for when you go back to your countries, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and because they were staff, you know, we didn't, we didn't uh, handle it the same way we would have had it been anybody else, you know, because we didn't want, we didn't want to deal with those problems either, you know, right. like having to like get into it with staff, but, so we just had to kind of swallow that pill, mm-hmm. um, but uh, but yeah, that was uh, that was some of the experiences that kind of came with like the you know different cultures and like the you know the immigration you know status of people mm-hmm. did usually get brought up you know language right. uh, was never really a problem unless you were like in work environments um, 
uh, they did try to educate some of the some of the like uh, you know some of the some of the Latinos that were like un, uh, like undocumented and stuff like that. Um, so that was cool, but 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 I feel like they just weren't giving them as many resources as they would like the the the, the people that spoke English. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I hope that kind of answered yeah, the question a little bit. What does a typical day in prison look like? A typical day in prison is is it really just becomes a routine. You know, like it's always the same. Um, some people try to change it up to make the time go by, but like a typical day in prison is like, well, um, lights turn on around like six six thirty in the morning. Um, the lights will turn on usually by about seven seven ten. You'll start getting called. Like you know, certain dorms or certain blocks will start getting called for uh, breakfast. Mm-hmm. Um, in prison, they refer to all eating blocks as chow. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's like, oh, it's chow time, it's chow time, you know, chow, everybody would be yelling chow. But, but yeah, for breakfast, we'll, breakfast will usually get called around like um, 7.10 to 7.30. Um, you come back from, from breakfast and then usually, um, and this is like pre-pandemic days because things mm-hmm. did change after the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But like, um, but pre-pandemic, like, you know, usually after you come back from chow or from uh, breakfast, then you can go out onto the you know, you can start to freely move around the prison. And so mind you that we were at a level two prison. And so level two prisons allowed us the freedom to move around, you know, without as much restriction because we were, we, I guess we were more privileged or we were people that were deemed like less violent. Mm-hmm. So the more violent that you are as an offender, the, 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 they'll raise your level. Mm-hmm. And so you'll go to a level three prison where you can't really roam as freely or a level four prison or a level five prison where those are like your super maxes. Right. So we were like at a we were at a uh, a lower tiered prison where where they did give us the freedom to okay well after lunch you can leave your cell you can leave your bed area you can uh, go walk freely on the yard you know you can go interact with inmates that are in other blocks mm-hmm. and other places on the compound um, sometimes you know you could use that time to go to the gym you know you could use that time to just go outside and sit around mm-hmm. um, in my in my case I tried to like I I, I worked. Mm-hmm. So like I would go to work around the time the breakfast was called and then I worked most of the day and then I would come back. But for most prisoners, uh, they would uh, enjoy that free time and then they would come back around 10 o'clock, uh, 10 to 10.30. They would come back into the dorms because then that's when the first count would start and count was just, you know, exactly what it is, what it sounds like. You know, they would literally count every inmate just to make sure nobody's escaped or something mm-hmm. or stuff like that. And that happened how um, many times a day, the count? So that the count would happen three times during like the hours in which we were like awake. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so that would be once at ten thirty, once at four thirty, and then again at nine thirty or eight thirty. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. So that was three times during like while people were awake. And then at night they would count at 11, then again at two, then again at four, then again at six. And then they, <laughs> then they don't count again until ten thirty. So, um, so it was like, I don't know, like six, there was like six or seven counts in a day. Right, right. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. So, so in between those counts, though, you were allowed to go outside and essentially do whatever you wanted, you know, within the, re- within the rules of the prison. So if you wanted to work out, if you just wanted to go hang out, if you wanted to read, um, you had access to libraries and stuff like that. So you could move around a little freely. Um, but a typical day was just, you know, waiting for them to, you know, you would have to go sit, sit down at your, in your cell during counts and then. When there wasn't count, you would just have to, you know, work your schedule around when it was time to eat. And mm-hmm. then when you weren't eating, 
you know, you could kind of, you know, move around a little bit. And mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, you can make things happen. Right, right. Um, Jonathan, our criminal justice system is rooted in a long history of racial discrimination and violence, even though it claims to rehabilitate, it rarely does. How did you see this happening while you were inside? Hmm. Okay. So now, and can I ask for clarification? So like how, like, mm-hmm. like see the discrimination and the violence or, or their claims to rehabilitate that doesn't really happen? Mm, um, talking in reference to maybe racial um, uh, numbers, uh, were, were there uh, more uh, people of color, men of color uh, uh, than, yes, yes. Than, okay. than white? Um, and also, um, you know, are they farther, uh, especially people of color, are they farther criminalized uh, or assumed, you know, violent because of where they are? Um, and also yeah. what I'm what I'm also referring to is whether there is really a path towards rehabilitation. Right. If we if you do have right. um, people that have committed you know, any kind of any kind of crime. Uh, but is there a path for them to, you know, um, when they when they're free, when when they're out um, for them to have a different kind of life? Um, is is yeah. is the facility actually doing what it's supposed to do in terms of preparing them to be, you know, um, uh, fully uh, um, productive citizens when they come out? Um, or is it just continuing, you know, is it just like keeping them there until they're free, but no real rehabilitation, you know, no skills, maybe nothing to prepare them. Mm -hmm. So as far as like the racial, like, like as far as like, I don't know, like the imbalance, Mm -hmm. you know, that you would see between like how maybe like certain like people within like the, the like men of color versus Mm -hmm. like the white guys, you know, Mm -hmm. like. I, I always, it felt to me like, well, so the, the, the numbers were kind of balanced mm-hmm. from what I saw. And that was just my experience at one prison. Um, I did, I did get to speak to a lot of guys who were older and who had been there for 30, 40, 50 years. I, I had a chance to really pick the brains of guys like that. And they all told me that this is relatively new. Um, you know, they said that back in the, back in, back in the, you know, like even as far, even as, as recently as maybe 10, 10, 15 years ago, you know, the, the prisons were very, like, unbalanced. You know what I mean? There were a lot more men of color in these prisons than there were white men. Um, now, those guys, and, you know, again, I, they're not experts in the field by any means, but mm-hmm. those guys think that it's the, the um, opioid uh, mm-hmm. crisis that, mm-hmm. that's bringing a lot more white men into the prison system. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether that's true or not. That's just what, that's what they see from their perspectives, right? They believe that, because, you know, a lot of the white guys that get, incarcerated or a lot of the white men that we see coming into the prisons are usually suffering from like these opioid um you know addictions and from like their their crimes are usually related to their to to opioids in some way or another right either they did something when they were like under the influence or or um you know or they were like abused or or they were abusing it or you know had them in high quantities i don't know stuff like that Mm -hmm. so that's just an observation that that we made and we don't you know you know of course uh you know um correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation right so um for us it seemed like things were more balanced and and that's what a lot of guys in prison think it is they think that it's the opioid 
uh, epidemic, you know, really affecting a lot of these white neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as like how guys are treated in there, um, there's still like a huge, like I felt like, like white guys got treated better. Like that was just, you know what I mean? Like when, like, in that, and I thought that, I thought that in all aspects, because every time there was some type of problem or every time that there was some type of anything going on, it always felt like they were coming down on like the men of color a lot more often and a lot more like hard than they would on anybody else. You know, um, they wouldn't hire um, a lot of black men to like work mm-hmm. in certain areas of the prison. You know what I mean? Some of the more, uh, some of the more high, highly sought after jobs, you know, like for example, I worked in the commissary office, but I was the only, I was, I was, it was usually always me and one white and then one black guy that worked there. Mm-hmm. Right. Every time a black guy got fired, they would bring in a black guy. But you know, it was like, you know, you know, like, but they would have like 11 or 12 other staff or, you know, guys that they would staff the commissary with and they were all white, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, so if you have 12 positions available, you're really only giving two of them to, to men of color. Mm-hmm. And this is like a job that people would consider a privilege in prison. You know, that didn't always seem fair. And it felt like it was like that in every priv- like job that was considered like a good mm-hmm. job mm-hmm. in prison, you know, so you had your laundry, you know, your laundry was considered a good job. The quartermaster was considered a good job. And in all of these different areas, like the, you know, working at the cafeteria was an okay job, but it, it paid really well. You know, so like I, when I would look into these areas, I didn't see a lot of color, <laughs> you know, and so, and so for, 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 for things to be like, you know, like for, to think that there's just as many men of color as there are white men in this mm-hmm. prison, but only white men are really like the ones occupying like the best jobs. Mm-hmm. That's when I started kind of noticing like, why is that? You know what I mean? And, and so, you know, there, another thing was that like, you know, bottom bunks, right? Like in prison, a bottom bunk is like also a privilege, right? So mm-hmm. not sleeping on the top bunk, um, you know, was always a privilege. And so like bottom bunks were like, I feel like they were predominantly all white guys. Like mm-hmm. you've never seen any any men of color with bottom bunks and that used to kind of rub me the wrong way too i'm like why do you got all you know like why is that you know mm-hmm. why why is it that we're we're just you know the numbers are pretty much equal in this dorm or in this sleeping area yet you know only white guys have bottom bunks like you know mm-hmm. and so i don't know I, I you know that's just kind of how it felt to me uh every time that uh that like for example like right before i left there was this huge brawl involving uh you know a a, a group of black men and a, and a group of white men mm-hmm. and i feel like they came down really hard on the black men in this brawl and the white guys you know they all kind of came out all right like they didn't get their bottom bunks taken away they didn't um they didn't have to face a lot of the re- same repercussions that the black individuals did and so like you know guys were starting to talk about that like i remember this was starting to become an issue right before i left like guys really starting to be like, hey, man, like, you know, we're getting sick of, the, of, of just being treated differently. And like, mm-hmm. it's very blatant. Like, it's, it's not even like you're trying to hide it. Um, but then again, I worked in a very, I mean, we, we, we were in prison in a very rural area, mm-hmm. you know, of Ohio, you know, in a place where like, you can tell that a lot of these staff members and a lot of the people that were running the prison come from areas that, you know, where maybe like racism is still a bit, you know, of a thing. You know, like these weren't like urban individuals, like people, like, you know, they didn't mm-hmm. come from cities. They probably didn't come, you know, you could just tell that their their communities were homogenous. Mm-hmm. You know, like their communities were probably all white. You know, they probably mm-hmm. didn't interact with, with uh, black or brown people outside of the prison, you know. So, you know, so they were the ones making a lot of the, the decisions. And so you could tell that it kind of, 
um, you know, it kind of like coincided with whatever their beliefs might be outside the prison. So that's just how we were like treated. Um, But um, as far as rehabilitation, I didn't think they were really rehabilitating guys in there. Like it, Mm -hmm. it, it, the, the, the programming, like they did have programming. They did have, they did have like, you know, things that they were claiming would help people, but then you would take these, these things and you could tell that, that, it just felt like cookie cutter. I, I don't know how to like real surface level programs. Like, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? They weren't really mm-hmm. attempting to get to the root of, of a lot of these problems and a lot of the things that were like, you know, hurting guys. A lot of programs had potential, but they just weren't like doing their, they, they just weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And so a lot of guys didn't take these, these programs seriously because, you know, a lot of men, men can tell, like, I mean, people in general, can tell when like someone's not invested in what they're doing. And so like, if you're not invested in teaching or like facilitating this program, then why should I be invested in coming? Mm-hmm. You know, like you're just wasting my time and I have a lot of time to do and I don't want to waste. I mean, some guys might want to waste time, but they're like, I could be doing anything else. Like instead of going to these rehabilitative programs, I could go watch Telemundo, you know, <laughs> or I could go watch <laughs> ESPN or, yeah. you know, something, you know, guys would rather do that. You know, and so no, I didn't. I didn't think that they were. I didn't. I did not think that they were creating a space or an environment that was like conducive to that rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. I didn't think so at all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and the numbers yeah. that you were you were talking about. I mean, it, it's. I mean, there's a couple of things that come to mind in what you just said. First of all, the fact that the person is, um, you know, an estimated fifty uh, percent men of color and fifty percent white men. It's already an over representation of uh, people of color, right? Because, for example, uh, there's only forty um, sorry, fourteen uh, percent of uh, black population in Ohio. Uh, so you already right. have an overrepresentation of you know black men um, in the prison system, just by the fact right. you know that the numbers are are the way that you you know that you kind of um, guess you know that about fifty fifty, and then the fact I mean there's other uns- uh, subtle ways right in which they uh, continue to play this um, maybe. Uh, racial stereotypes or um, discrimination in terms of uh, job opportunities, right? Within the the je- the prison system, right? Um, the fact that the good jobs um, went to to the white inmates, uh, which can potentially, right? Those those better jobs um, could potentially prepare somebody. Um, in, when they when they leave the prison, right to to um, yeah, to absolutely. have some sort of yeah. skills that are um, that are um, valuable for for them to to start a new life uh, when when they're yeah. out. So so yeah, definitely. There's the sort of the, the the things that came to mind in terms of um, you know the racial politics that that happen there in in the prison system. Uh, you know, from previous conversations with you, Jonathan, you mentioned having a uh, group of three or four friends uh, that became part of your circle, que fueron tu familia durante estos años. Tell me mm-hmm. about how you try to build community and why it is important or so important, especially in this place. Yeah, like, you know, you know, building a community, I mean, like, okay, like, you know, you think you're going to this place where you're going to this place where like people, 
you know, like I, you know, like we started this conversation and, and, you know, like I was a college student. Mm -hmm. I graduated from a great university and I went from this university and this, 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 you know, this environment, this academia, I went from academia to, to prison, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? To, to the state penitentiary in Ohio. And I get there and I immediately notice that a lot of these men are not, are not the brightest or the best that society has to offer, right? And, and, then, and, and, and I'm saying in a really nice way that they were all scumbags. There was a mm-hmm. lot of scumbags. There was a lot of just just not good men, you know? And so mm-hmm. at first I'm like really turned off to it and I'm just thinking, well, I'm, well, I just can't talk to a lot of these guys. But I still tried to keep somewhat of an open mind going forward. And, and, and eventually I did come across men that I, that, that were very, very solid men, you know, men that I thought like, wow, like, you know, eventually, you know, over time after getting to know these guys and building a relationship with them, I started realizing like, man, I would like, you would be a great friend of mine on the, you know, outside of this place. Like I could imagine, I could imagine this relationship transcending this experience, you know? And so, yeah, I did meet a few guys that, that really did become Tú sabes, mi familia, tú sabes, gente mm-hmm. que, que, mm-hmm. que yo, que yo puedo decir que yo amo ahora. Right. You know, people that I think I could really, like, say that I love and that I want to, like, take care of and try to, like, you know, keep, you know, keep, keep up with that relationship uh, after that. And so, you know, the reason the building that community is so important and the reason that that was, that did eventually become such a crucial component to, like, my, like, my uh, just well-being in there, my mental well-being especially, mm-hmm. was because, you know, I can only call my family, my friends, and everybody so much you know, before I start to really feel like I'm bothering them or, you know what I'm saying, before I feel like, you know, um, you know, like maybe I should, you know, give them a little bit of time because they're working and because they're busy and because they have this, this and that going on. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the day, you're, you, you only got those guys, you know, like that, that's what I started realizing. Like I really did have to start leaning on guys in there, you know, because I didn't like we were all we had, right. you know. And so, like I said, like, I, of course, I could I could I could call people, but I can only call people so much before the, sh- the phones would get shut off. Mm-hmm. Right. The phones would get shut off at 11 at 11 p.m. every night. And I, and I wasn't always ready to go to bed at 11 p.m. at night. You know what I mean? There were, there were days where, where I, I just I was up, you know, and I had to be there in my own thoughts. And and, you know, and so really leaning on these guys became you know what I'm saying? We did did cater to this brotherhood right. and this camaraderie that that I had with some of those guys. I'm not gonna say a lot of them, but like I said, three or four guys mm-hmm. that that I really ended up growing like a massive amount of love for because they were there for me throughout some of my toughest days. And and you know we suffered together. We mm-hmm. we really really suffered together for years. You know for 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 years out of my life. And so mm-hmm. you know eventually they they became part of the support system. You know and so I was I was leaning on those guys as much as I was leaning on my family and friends at home. You know, and um, and so, you know, like I tried, we tried to do things that, that were uh, outside of the norm in prison. You know, like I remember on holidays, <laughs> like I was one of the ones really like vouching and like really uh, pushing for family dinners where they would be like, we would all cook something together and we would sit down and like, you know, break bread together, like really mm-hmm. sit down, like almost like we were at home mm-hmm. and uh, and eat together. And, you know, moments like that were were really special in there. You know, because it was one of the few times that I found humanity. I could see the huma- the, the humanity in a place where you would think mm-hmm. you wouldn't find it, you know? 
And uh, so that that experience was was amazing. You know, um, I'm really happy that I got to meet those men, and I'm you know, and, and hopefully, you know, if all goes well, I'd love to see them outside of those those walls. You know, hopefully. Right, right. now, Jonathan, cooking. What does cooking mean in prison? <laughs> Do you have a stove so and, and like sartenes y ollas para cocinar, or how how do you cook there? Absolutely not. No, <laughs> I wish uh, I wish we had ollas and and all that stuff, but we didn't. We had a microwave. Mm-hmm. We had a microwave. <laughs> uh, we had a microwave. If you if you were lucky, you had a toaster. Uh-huh. You know, and if you were even more lucky, you you, you sometimes they a, a certain dorm. Or a block would have like a toaster oven, but ultimately we had we had microwaves. Microwaves are pretty much our main our main way of cooking, and so you'd be surprised what you can do in a microwave. Like I didn't know. Like you know, these guys get real inventive in there. They get real uh, the ing- the ingenuity that that comes out of this place is insane. And so you know, I mean, I, now because of prison, I know how to I know how to make ramen noodle soups. I know how to fry them. I can fry and make like a low main type of meal with ramen noodle soups. You know, we, we can in make, a microwave. you know, fried in a microwave. Yeah, <laughs> we, we can, we can make fried rice in a microwave. We could, we could make empanadas in uh-huh, a microwave, uh-huh. you know, like, you know, para, you know, para mi Latinos, you know, we were making empanadillas mm-hmm. in, a, in a microwave, like <laughs> just like you were buying them at home, mm-hmm. you know? And so we were yeah, in and, and, you know, we would fry them. They would actually get fried in this microwave. So, there was a lot of cooking techniques that you had to learn if you really wanted to know how to make food taste good. And so you'd be surprised how many cooking techniques there are to making things in a microwave. I bet, <laughs> you'd be I very bet. surprised. <laughs> yeah. um, now, you spent uh, the last year under the COVID-19 pandemic. How did, yeah. how did things change? Uh, what did you witness during these times? And how was it handled there? Um, and most of all, oh, how man. did you survive? It was so, yeah, the pandemic, when the pandemic hit, it was insane to watch from where I was, mm-hmm. you know, like I like we were literally watching the world fall apart, like before our eyes. And we're in a place where like, no, we knew nobody was thinking about us, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like we're like it, it didn't take a, it didn't take a genius to, to know that no one was thinking about us. You know, and and and, it, and it, it eventually it went on the show because as the pandemic started going, like we started realizing that guys were getting sick. Like we, like I remember watching around me, guys were falling like dominoes, mm-hmm. and and I witnessed like five individuals pass away. Like I witnessed two buddies of mine die from COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. Like I remember watching one of my buddies go to sleep, and I remember him not waking up. Mm. You know, and 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 I remember we having to like tell the tell the guards like, hey, like, you know, Russell's not getting up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like he, like somebody needs to go check on him. You know what I mean? And and they didn't take us serious. And you know, it was just stuff like that. You know, where they're like, oh, whatever. You know, like, no, no, like, for, like you need to like you need to listen to me. Like, he is not waking up. Like somebody need like he needs help. Like somebody needs to go check on him. And you know, and so. You know, it took them a while to finally realize that they needed to get us masks. You know, they started they started uh, almost like being really hard on us as if we were the ones that were out there in, mm-hmm. in, in normal society. It's like, no, you need to focus on your on your on your staff. Right. Like, you know, we, we were telling the higher ups in the prison, like you need to focus on your staff because you guys are the ones that are going out there into the real world and then bringing that stuff back here mm-hmm. to us. 
you know, so, but, but, but yeah, they, they, they didn't handle it well at all, in my opinion. I mean, guys were falling out. They weren't testing people. Mm-hmm. So whatever numbers that exist right now, they're not accurate. whatever numbers, they're not accurate. I can, I will, I, I, can, I will promise that because I watched hundreds of, of my fellow inmates like bedridden mm-hmm. and not get a single test. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like not get a single test, like, and, and, and then letting, you know, they, they were letting the staff know like, Hey, like I'm sick, something's wrong with me. And, you know, and they were just like, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. they didn't really take any really big steps. I mean, all they really did was close down the, the facility. They stopped letting visitors come mm-hmm. as if visitors were like the real culprit here, you know, which I understood that that was, that was necessary, but you know, they closed down visiting and, they closed down movement. So we went from being like an open camp to being like a 23, like lockdown where we could never leave our dorms, mm-hmm. you know? So like we, it eventually, it, it felt like real prison. It felt like, like super max prison because we weren't allowed to leave mm-hmm. our, our cells for 23 hours a day. You know, the only time we'd be able to leave was to go eat, mm-hmm. you know? And so, um, no, they, I, I don't think they took, I don't really think, I don't think they took any real precautions. I mean, they just kind of let it ride out. Like, they just let it ride through the, they just let it kind of, you know, make, run its course through us. And then at the end of it, they, 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 they witnessed the last guy standing and that was it. They just, I think they had to report the guys that passed away, but you know, then there was a lot of them. Right. Um, did initially, did they do any like temperature checks or making sure hygiene was followed, you know, proper yeah, hygiene? So, and how, how long did that last? Like, was it just yeah, initially so and then eventually, just... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like eventually, like I think like six months into the pandemic, like, I mean, like, like this is six months. Like, I mean, we're watching it really to run its course out here in society, like on TV and stuff. And so, mm-hmm. but about six months in, they eventually started doing like, I, you know, I think they started feeling pressure from whoever was giving them pressure. I don't know who, I know people were calling their parents and their loved ones and telling them like, Hey, like they're not handling this well in here. So I guess those people, their loved ones started calling and making complaints. And, and so, excuse me. So it, um, what happened was that they eventually did start incorporating temperature checks where they would wake us up at a certain time during the mornings and then they would get us out of bed and they would go through and give everybody a temperature check. And then they would put one of those, uh, I think it was, a um, one of those things they put on your finger. I don't even know what it's called. I can't, uh, uh mm-hmm. an, ox- an oxometer or something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, it was something oxygen. that like recording. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your oxygen levels. And like, and it would also tell you like what your like beats per minute were and stuff like that. Um, so they started doing that, but even that didn't feel like, I felt like it was just like, it was, just, I don't know. It felt like it was just more like, okay, we're like, they just wanted to be able to say that they were doing that, mm-hmm. you know? And they attempted to make us like sleep from head to toe so that we weren't like breathing in the other person's face. It was weird. Like they were doing stuff that I guess was an, it was an effort, but it just didn't like, it didn't, we, we couldn't see how it was really doing anything. But like, it's almost impossible, yeah. right? To try to do anything like that in a prison uh, because there's exactly. no way yeah. to be six feet apart. Correct. There's no way to, exactly. There's no way to be six feet apart. Like, that's what we were saying. It's like, you guys have a real issue here. And the real issue is overcrowdedness. Mm-hmm. Like this prison, because, because that prison was built to only host, like they, like there wasn't even supposed to be bunk beds in that prison when it was originally built, you know, and I, the only reason I know this is because I know guys that were there since it was originally built. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, they were telling us like, yeah, this used to be like one man areas. You know what I mean? Like this was for one person, this was for one person. And eventually these one man areas started becoming like four man areas, mm-hmm. you know? And so I don't think I once I don't think once in this pandemic I was ever more than six feet away from anybody. 
Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like I was always like I was always in very close quarters with a lot of people mm-hmm. and a lot of people had COVID. So the way that I survived that was that I, I stuck to that mask. Like I, I made sure that because they were because guys started making masks. That started mm-hmm. to become a hustle in, in prison. <laughs> like guys that knew how to sew, mm-hmm. like would would find material and just start making masks and were selling them for a couple soups. Like, hey, I got a, I got this for four soups. Mm-hmm. If anybody wants a mask, I got this for four ramen noodle soups. You know, and so we started. I started buying masks from other inmates, and then eventually the the, the you know the prison started giving us masks. But I I wore my mask every day. I didn't leave my area without a mask on. I didn't speak to people too close. I just stayed in my area. Like I tried to complete, I became a hermit mm-hmm. when during this pandemic. And so I can say that I didn't get sick during like the month. I didn't get sick from, from, from about when the pandemic started, which I believe was in March, mm-hmm. like April, March around that time. Right. I didn't get sick from March till I left. Mm-hmm. So that could be that I was asymptomatic. Um, or it could be that I was just really fortunate in taking care of myself, but um, but I think it was because I was asymptomatic, if I'm being mm-hmm. honest, because there's no way that I could escape. Right. There was you so know, much was all around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was so much going on around me. Yeah. Right, right. So now you are free and yeah. you are starting a new chapter in your life. And no doubt it won't be easy. Uh, there is still a very, very few employment opportunities for previously incarcerated people. What are your plans for the future? How do you, what do you, what do you have? What hopes do you have and what, you know, plans do you have to, to, to start a new life? Um, you know, that, that's something that I thought about every day in there. Like, you know, mm-hmm. when I get out, like, what am I going to do? Like, I have, I have a degree, you know, I'm a, I have a bachelor's degree. And so I'm like, well, maybe I can make something work with that. But it's just that this felon label is going to hold me down a lot more than that degree will pick me up, mm. you know? And so kind of keeping that in mind, like I've, I've thought through a lot of things. And so, you know, I, I believe that I'm going to have to eventually go into like business for myself, you know? So like, I'm really trying to plan through like, okay, well, how can I start doing that? Like, how can I, you know, cause I feel like that's a cliche thing too, right? Like everybody these days is all hell bent on becoming an entrepreneur and, and mm-hmm. starting their own business. But I guess I'm trying to think of it. Well, like, what can I do, you know, to, to just like, like, like to generate like passive income? What can I do to help myself build a steady stream of income, you know, alongside a job that I can maintain, you know, like, so, um, you know, so I've been looking into, so what, what my future holds is like, you know, I want to get into real estate, mm-hmm. you know, if, uh, you know, I want to work, I want to work a good job. I want to save up some capital. Eventually I want to start buying homes. You know, I want to get rental properties. Um, I also own a, I, you know, I, I was into film and photography before I went away. Um, and I have, uh, a, a, a small startup business that, that, uh, that me and a few buddies of our, of mine are like getting started and that's called Awaken Koala and Awaken Koala is a, uh, is a brand and marketing, uh, um, you know, firm or agency that, that, you know, we help small and upcoming businesses like build their brand and build their marketing scheme, you know, if you need a new website, we can help with that. If you need to design, um, you know, a product, or if you need to design something specifically, we can help with that. If you need a media content, then we can help with that. And so like, that's something that, that I've been getting involved with, um, and that I plan on pursuing with, with my buddies. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, like, you know, hopefully through, 
through those two endeavors as well as a lot of other, you know, things that I have planned that I want to do. You know, I really want to get into, uh, you know, food, you know, like uh, I want to get into like cultivating food mm-hmm. um, in urban areas, right? Like I want to, I want to find a more efficient way to cultivate food in like urban, in urban areas, especially like cities, big cities um, and stuff like that. So like, I don't know, we, I got a lot of things that I really want to try. And, and the one thing that I learned from prison is that I'm no longer scared. Like I don't, I don't, you know, what, what, you know what I mean? Like I have nothing to lose and everything to gain. So like, why, mm-hmm. you know, like I am not going to be afraid to pursue anything, you know? Right. Um, I just, and I just know that now I got, I have a whole different, I have, I, I have a different type of motivation now, you know, and after losing those years of my life, um, in a way that was just, you know, that, that just wasn't the way that I wanted to, to go. That was just not the direction I wanted to go, but, but, you know, like, you know, like the saying goes, you know, when, when life hands you lemons, you know, you got to make lemonade, you know, so I'm going to try to make some lemonade. Right. Uh, is there anything else you would like to say about you or your future plans? You know, um, I just want to say that, you know, when you're forced to go through something, when you're forced to, when you're forced to face your biggest fear every day for three years, you know, it changes you. Mm-hmm. And... And, you know, and if you're anybody that's got anything, you know, going on upstairs, you know, you don't walk out of that experience the same man. And so, you know, I just kind of want to say that, you know, you know, I, this, this experience has made me better. And and I know that a lot of men don't walk out of there rehabilitated, but, but you know, I wasn't just any, you know, I wasn't, just, I, I wasn't, I wasn't like most guys that walked in there. And so I really took advantage of my time in prison. And um, and I just kind of want to encourage all the listeners, you know, anybody that listens to this podcast to, you know, really think of people who are incarcerated just a tad bit differently. Mm. Um, of course, a lot of those people in there do deserve to be there. And I won't, and I, and I just, I can't say that enough, you know, but there are a lot of men and a lot of women in the incarceration system that really do recognize the mistake they made and wish they had a second opportunity, you know, and so... Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm just saying that, you know, I used to look at incarcerated peoples and people that have been through that differently than I do now. I guess in my in my in the past, I would have been a little I was harder on people that were going through that. Mm-hmm. And I and I just wish I wouldn't have been because it's 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 something it's something so out of the ordinary that they're going through. And and, you know, you just got to remember that that does that does something to a person, you know, and so. I just, I, you know, I wish there was more advocacy on the, on the, on the, on that, on that problem. I wish that we were doing more to help these people rehabilitate because there are a lot of people in there that want to rehabilitate mm-hmm. and they want to do better, but just aren't given the opportunity. And so that's really all I, I got to say about that. Great. Jonathan, gracias por esta conversación. Thank you. It was a pleasure. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. 